Good morning. Welcome to Harvest. Uh, my name is Pastor Mike. I'm so glad that you guys are here worshiping with us this morning. If you're a guest with us, we're especially glad that you're here and uh, we want to make you feel welcome. So if you need anything, please let us know. Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles if you've got one with you. If you don't have one, there's a hardback black one somewhere there on the floor around you underneath the chairs. You can use one of those. We'd love for you to do that. Today, we are, as the video told us, we are now moving into the New Testament. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 is where we're headed. Philippians chapter 2. If you want to meet me there. So these videos that we've been showing each week um, has kind of been our attempt to, to keep this giant epic story that we've been studying kind of cohesive for you. I know some of you have kind of been in and out during the summer and you might have missed a sermon here or there and, and just kind of reminding ourselves week to week how has the story been progressing. And so I, I think it's been really helpful in that way and that we appreciate the Bible project that you see at the end of each one. They're the ones that produce that and allow us to use it. And then Nathaniel has been gracious enough to kind of edit that for us and get it where it works for us each week. But um, th this whole point is to, again, to study the story that is the Bible. We believe here at Harvest that God wrote a book and in this book, it's primarily him telling us a story that leads us to this point. It's this mind-blowing, eternal, everlasting, epic story. Um, that, and today, we finally get to the, the climax, the, the pinnacle of the whole thing that's all been pointing to this one guy named Jesus Christ. And his life um, is, takes up like the majority of the New Testament, <laughs> and so it's kind of hard to cram all that into one sermon. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Philippians, when he's writing this letter to, to the Philippian church, gives us this really nice, compact, insightful understanding of who Jesus was, and why he came, and what he did. So we're going to use Paul's little synopsis here in Philippians with some additional scriptures to get a picture on this guy named Jesus and why he's the center of the story and why he's so important to us today. And what Paul wants us to see is that Jesus' role in the story comes down to this idea. To experience the height of God's glory, I must meet Christ in the depths of his humility. Let me say that again. In order to experience the heights of God's glory, which I hope that's what you desire today. That's what I desire today. That's what you were made for. All the things that you think you desire in life are actually pointing you to a greater desire, and that is the desire to know and experience the glory of God. And if we're going to experience the heights of God's glory, I must come and meet Christ in the depths of his humility. And that's what we're going to see a picture of in Philippians 2. So if you've got your Bibles open, everyone looking at Philippians 2, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 5 is where we're starting. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Point number one today is simply this, God came to me. God came to earth, to humanity. Paul starts off his little section here uh, about Christ saying, have this mind among yourselves. What mind? The mind of Christ, which is what he's about to show us in this, in this section, okay? And we're going to find out that the mind of Christ is a mind of humility, if you were to go back and read verses 1 through 4, you would see that he's already been talking about humility, and now he's using Christ as the example of this is what humility looks like. Now, humility is not, was, was not a valued 
characteristic in the Roman world when Jesus was living. It was not seen as a strength. It was not seen as a good thing. It was actually seen as a weakness, all right? They were really down on humility. And I think, honestly, our culture today, our society today, is the same way. We talk about humility like it's this admirable trait and, you know, this, this really moral great thing, but we don't really value it. We don't reward it. We don't go after it. We don't encourage it. It's not what we focus on. We don't actually see it as a strength or a virtue. What we value in our culture is high self-esteem and, and strong self-confidence and a driving competitiveness, which are really all just fancy words for pride, which is the opposite of humility. So we're not that different from the people that Paul is talking to here when he's talking and saying, have this mind of Christ, a mind of humility. And so he goes on, he says, he who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Those two phrases, when you bring them together, the form of God and who was equal to God, tells us simply that Jesus was indeed God. Okay? This is a big point of debate, and I know that. But what we understand from the entire story of the Bible that we've been studying, remember all the way back to creation we talked about this, that God the Son, the second member of the Trinity, has always existed. At this point in history, he takes on human flesh and he steps onto earth, but he has always existed as God the Son from eternity past. He was God. He is God. And before he ever stepped into human form, he was ruling and reigning as the sovereign God of all creation. And Paul is telling us he was God, but he did not count equality with God. Notice this, a thing to be grasped. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? Think about that word grasped. Like think about when you use that word. It means, it means to grab to, to clutch, to hold tightly, like you're not gonna get this out of my white knuckle grip, right? Like this is mine, it's for me, for my benefit, I'm gonna leverage everything I can off of this to make my life better. That's the idea of grasping something. But it says here that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God, but he chose not to use his godness if that's a word, for just himself. He says, it's not just about me. It's not just about what I can get out of it or how this can benefit me. I instead am going to use it for the benefit of others. Although he was above creation in every way, he chose not to stay there. And Paul says he emptied himself like a servant, like the likeness of men, term emptied himself can sometimes be confusing in the sense of some people think, well, that means that he no longer was God. He emptied himself of his godness, and so therefore he was just human. But that's not actually what Paul is saying here. When he says that he emptied himself, he's not saying that Jesus lost any part of himself. The word emptied is more a picture of a cup and pouring it out. Some of your translations might even say that, that he poured himself out, right? that he used himself up that he took everything that he did have, he didn't give it away, he used it 
for the benefit of others. And notice it says he emptied himself. No one forced him to do this. God didn't make him do it. It, He chose, God of the universe, God the Son, chose to come and empty himself, to humble himself. The creator chose to become the created. God chose to step down off of his throne and in to human history in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul says he emptied himself coming in the likeness of men. What does that mean? Well, it means, why didn't, he, why didn't Paul just say he came as a man? Or he came as a human? Or he became human? Why does he say in the likeness of men? Because what Paul means is that when Jesus came as a man, he came like men, but also not like men. There's kind of a, a dual side to this. He came like a man. Not, he wasn't a look-alike. Right? That's the first thing he said. He wasn't like a, like a human doppelganger. Right? Like he wasn't like, it wasn't like he just looked like a guy, but really wasn't a guy. He, he was indeed human, but not exactly like us. He came like men, we see in John 1 and 14. It says this, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is another title for Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So right here, John tells us he was God, And he became flesh. He became human. He was 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. Micah, how does that work? I don't know. If I could tell you, I would be God. And this would be a very different conversation right now, okay? We don't understand all of it, but he was 100% God and 100% man at the same time. And it says that he came and he dwelt among us. The Greek there word for dwelt among us literally means that he came and tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were venturing through the wilderness, trying to get to the promised land, God had them create a tabernacle, a giant tent for worship. And the tabernacle was where God's presence would come down and dwell among men. So when Jesus came and he dwelt among us, when he tabernacled among us, it was God's presence coming and dwelling with men. Just like in the Old Testament. And because of that, John says, we have seen his glory, glory of the God manifested in the body of a human. That is remarkable that he came just like us, but he also came not like us. Hebrews 4.15 says this, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, that's his role for us now, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, But one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. He came, he was fully human, he was fully tempted in every way that you are, in every way that I was or am, but without sin. Our human brains cannot even conceptualize that. I I cannot fathom what it would be like to make it through one day let alone a lifetime, without sin. 
plugging my heart and plugging my mind and plugging my life. And Jesus did it, and he was the only one who ever did. That's how he's not like us in his humanness. He was the human that God was always meant us to be, the one that he created us to be before sin entered the world. He emptied himself, coming in the likeness of men, and it also says that he was a servant. A servant is the epitome of humility. That is the picture of humility, right? Like you don't, that's the whole purpose of serving is to serve someone besides themselves. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus is talking about himself and he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His whole purpose in coming was to humble himself and to serve us, how? Primarily by sacrifice, by giving up his own life to benefit others, to save my life and to save your life. And God's glory was on beautiful display as Jesus humbly sacrificed his life. Humility is such a key thing that I think we don't give enough time and attention to. I've used, I'm gonna give you a definition now of humility. You won't jot this down. I use this over and over again. If you've been here for a while, you've heard this, and you're like, seriously, you can't find a better one? No, I can't. This is the best one I have found of biblical humility. It comes from C.S. Lewis. He says this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not, look at how terrible I am. I'm a horrible person. I can't do this. They're so much better than I am. It's not tearing yourself down. That's not biblical humility. Humility is choosing to put others' needs before your own. To put others ahead of yourself. Humility is saying, I would rather serve you than serve me. That's humility, and that's what Jesus showed us. That's precisely what he came to do and what we have to do if we're going to follow him. When I was growing up, um, one thing I never seemed to be short on um, was confidence. Just going to be honest with you today, a little confession in church, right? Like, I always thought I could do everything good, probably better than you, and I should be doing it if I'm not. Like, that was kind of my MO. Like, remember that phrase in the 80s and 90s, like, you can, do, you, you can be whatever you put your mind to. Anybody else remember that? Like, like yeah, that, I believe that 100%. You can do whatever you put your mind to. Like, and I, I pretty much blame all of that on my parents for loving me too much and encouraging me too much and just like, who seriously lo- unconditionally loves their children anymore? Like, who does that? Like, that's just crazy, right? I'm kidding. Just joking, mama. Uh, but, uh, but seriously, like, there's, there was just this kind of built-up confidence in me where I thought that that's just how my life was. And so I remember one time in second grade, we were in class and we were doing this play um, called The Little Red Hen. Anybody ever heard of The Little Red Hen before? You guys heard of this play before? Little kid story. And so we're doing this play and, and of course, Micah thought, I need to have the number one role. Like I need to have the biggest, best primary role because I can do it the best and this is my thing. So I try out for the lead role and I get it. I get the role of The Little Red Hen. Now, even though I grew up in a small town, I was not a country boy. We didn't live on a farm. I didn't have any of that. And so somehow I had missed the understanding that a hen was inherently female, right? 
So by the time my agricultural knowledge caught up to my theatrical aspirations, it was too late. I had to quit, I had to give up the role, but there weren't any other roles left. And so I got nothing, and I wasn't in the play. This wasn't the first time, or the last, where my pride got me to miss out on something that I really wanted or desired or would be best for me or would move me ahead in life. And I think what the issue was, I never really came to understand humility until I got to college. And even then, the understanding and the pursuit of it was a slow-growing process, believe me. But it wasn't when I heard, because I was taught as a kid about humility. Like, it wasn't when I heard about humility. It wasn't when I knew the definition or read it in a book or read it. It wasn't until I understood and saw and grasped the humility of my Savior coming and giving his life for me. That God would do that. It wasn't until I got that that I started to understand maybe this whole life isn't just about me. Maybe I don't always need to be the one on top. If God would choose to lower himself to serve others, who am I to think that I can't do the same? Now, believe me, I still have a long way to go on the humility thing, okay? Courtney would tell you, amen, all right? Like I'm just saying, but... The process starts, the pursuit happens when you finally get the picture. Paul is trying to show us here, not just tell us, he's trying to show us this is what humility looks like. God came to me to show me humility. That's the point. That was the purpose of Jesus coming. That's what Paul is trying to tell us here. He came to show us, to teach us, to be a picture of this is humility, this is what you're going after. So God came to me. The second point today is simply this. God died for me. God died for me. Verse 8, Paul continues, he says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here, Paul tells us exactly how he humbled himself. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. By submitting to authority. That's a hard pill to swallow for some of us. Jesus came as God and still chose to be obedient. He was obedient to the law. He perfectly obeyed it. He was obedient to the Father he came and he says he only did and he only said what the Father told him to say and do. And he was obedient to the mission. He came and submitted himself to seek and save the lost. And it says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's not enough for Paul just to say he was obedient to death. He adds this phrase, even death on a cross. Because death on a cross was the hardest, most 
painful, most humiliating an experience a person could go through. We don't do crosses anymore. Have you noticed that? Because it's, it's savage. The physical humiliation of the cross was so strong. And I think that in our culture, we've gotten so used to it being a piece of jewelry or something we hang on our walls or something we just sing about in a song that we forget what it was before Christ made it beautiful. So to help us with that, I just want to read for you a little snippet out of this book. This is called Vintage Jesus. And it just kind of gives us a better picture of what we're talking about when we talk about the cross. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 500 BC, perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus and not outlawed until the time of Emperor Constantine who ruled Rome in the fourth century AD. In the days of Jesus, crucifixion was reserved for the most horrendous criminals. Even the worst Roman citizens were beheaded rather than crucified because it was so terrible. The pain of crucifixion is so horrendous that a, pers- that a word was invented to explain it. Excruciating literally means from the cross. A crucified person could hang on a cross for days, passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggled to breathe while laboring under the weight of their body. It was not uncommon for those being crucified to slump on the cross in an effort to empty their lungs of air and thereby hasten their death. To ensure maximum suffering, scourging preceded crucifixion. Scourging itself was a painful event that many people died from it without even making it to their cross. Jesus' hands would have been chained above his head to expose his back and legs to an executioner's whip of cat, uh, called a cat of nine tails. The whip was a series of long leather straps, and at the end of some of the straps were heavy balls of metal intended to tenderize the body of a victim like a chef tenderizes a steak by beating it. Some of the straps had hooks made out of either metal or bone that would have sunk deeply into the shoulders, back, buttocks, and legs of the victim. And once the hooks had sunk deeply into the tenderized flesh, the executioner would rip the skin, muscle, tendons, and even bones off the victim as he shouted in agony and shook violently and bled heavily. Then Jesus had a crown of lengthy thorns pressed into his head as onlookers mocked him as the king of the Jews. With that, with that, blood began to flow down Jesus' face, causing his hair and beard to be bloodied and matted and his eyes to burn as he strained to see through his own sweat and blood. Upon arriving at his place of crucifixion, they pulled Jesus' beard out, an act of ultimate disrespect in ancient cultures. They spat on him and mocked him in front of his family and friends. Jesus, the carpenter who had driven many nails into wood with his own hands, then had five to seven inch rough metal spikes driven into the most sensitive nerve centers on the human body, his hands and feet. Jesus was nailed to his wooden cross. At this point, Jesus was in unbearable agony. Jesus was then lifted up and his cross was dropped into a prepared hole, causing his body to shake violently on the spikes. In further mockery, a sign was posted above Jesus that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King 
of the Jews. At this point during the crucifixion, the victims labored to breathe as their body went into shock, naked and embarrassed. None of this was done in dignified privacy, but rather in open public places. It would be like nailing a bloodied naked man above the front entrance to a grocery store. That is the humiliation. that our Savior went through. That is a picture. That is, Jesus' humility is never more visible than in his obedience to death, death on the cross. But it wasn't just a physical humiliation for him. There was also a spiritual cost to this. There was a spiritual humiliation that Jesus suffered Jesus died for sin that wasn't his. And that sin, our sin, separated Jesus from his father for the first and only time in all of history. And that spiritual hurt would have been greater than anything he even experienced in what we just read. There was a spiritual cost and humiliation as well. Jesus' humility was most effective in his obedience to death, death on a cross. So I want to highlight just real briefly three ways that he spiritually stepped into our place and suffered on our behalf. Number one, on the cross, Jesus became our spiritual substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sin upon himself, and in turn, he gave us all of his perfect, sinless righteousness. We get so used to hearing that, I think, sometimes that we forget that that is shocking, that anyone would do that. But it wasn't shocking to God. Do you understand? This was his plan from the very beginning. Like he knew this was coming. He knew where this was all headed. And he kept the story going. And he brought it to the perfect time in history for Jesus to come. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still rebelling, while we were still chastising his name, while we were still in complete uh, enemies of God, he chose to die for us as a spiritual substitute for the sin we were committing. This is the perfectly planned climax of the epic story that God had in mind. Also on the cross, Jesus became our spiritual solution. Let me read this to you from Acts 13, verse 26. says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, 
To us have been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection together fulfill scores and scores of promises and prophecies from the Old Testament that were spoken hundreds of years before they were fulfilled. He is the long-awaited, promised Messiah who is coming to save the world. He is the spiritual solution, and only in him will we find forgiveness, will we find freedom, from sin and death and hell. He's our spiritual substitute. He's the spiritual solution. And most importantly, maybe, Jesus on the cross, Jesus became spiritually superior. This is not a popular thing to say in our culture of inclusion and everybody can believe what they want and every religion is equal. But I'm telling you right now, for the love of your soul, it is not Corinthians 15, three through four says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says this right here is of first importance. Nothing else is more important. Nothing else is more critical. Nothing else is more relevant. This is it, that he came, that he died, that he was buried and that he rose three days later. That's the most important thing you can know and understand. Why? Because no one else in all of history, in all of religions, has ever done this. No one has died and come back and lives eternally. Only Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. Only Jesus was the perfect, spotless substitute for our sins. Only Jesus conquered sin and death by raising back to life. And only Jesus is the spiritual superior who can save you from your sins. He's not only superior to you and I and our sinfulness, he's superior to every other religion, every other solution that is offered for the sin problems in our world. He himself said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' claim in the Christian religion is an exclusive claim. You have to make a choice. One set of my uh, grandparents um, were lifetime farmers. I mean like old school Farmers. When I graduated high school, they still did not have running water in their house. 
right? Like they still went to the well and like pumped stuff for baths and doing dishes and the whole thing. They had an outhouse in the back. So if you had to go, that's where you went. Like that was how they rolled, right? Like that was how they lived. But we, we loved going to their house and spending the day and not spending the night because of the outhouse thing, okay? But spending the day was great and you got to go and you just got to experience like where this like time stood still and like it seemed like there was no distractions, there was no hurriedness, it was just like you were just hanging and, and it was, it was a re- and they lived from what it appeared to be in poverty. They just didn't have much. They didn't buy stuff, they just lived with what they had, that's just how they lived. And from the outside looking in, you would have thought that they were poor. But at one point in my life, my parents uh, were trying to buy a house and they, for various business reasons, needed a co-signer on the loan. And grandpa was, said he'd co-sign for him, but he couldn't really co-sign because he didn't have any credit. Like, they never had credit. They just dealt in cash. That's what they did. So instead, he gave them his bank account number and balance, which was enough to cover the entire cost of the house. And that was the collateral to allow him to sign on the loan. Many people looked at their lifestyle and saw poverty when actually what it was was simplicity. And in fact, it was their simplicity that made them rich rather than poor. Jesus is the same way. Do not look at Jesus' humility and think that it's inferiority. It is not. It is precisely Christ's humility that gives him his superiority. It's precisely the fact that God came and accomplished all that needed and could be accomplished for all of history to be righted that gives him the claim that he is superior to all other solutions that you are offered. And his superiority calls me to worship him in my own humility. God died for me to call me to humility. This is the purpose. This is the reason. He died on the cross to call me to join him in the depths of his humility. The question you have to ask yourself is this. Will I humble myself before the one who humbly died for my sin and submit to him as Lord? Will you be obedient to him as Lord just as he was obedient to the cross for you? God came to me, God died for me, and lastly today, God lives above me. We can't leave this part off because this is the part that gives us something to keep living for and walking forward in. We're going to go back to Philippians 2 in just a second, but I want to finish 1 Corinthians 15 here first. So 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12 says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Then, even, then not even Christ has been raised. All right, so Paul's making an argument here about resurrection. You kind of have to follow. It's a little dicey, but here we go. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul's making an argument here about the resurrection because the resurrection is the linchpin to the Christian faith. It all rises and falls on this. If this isn't true, then everything is a hoax. This is it right here. And Paul makes the argument. He says, if Christ has not been raised, if it's not true, then our preaching is in vain because we're misrepresenting God. We're saying things that aren't true about him. That your faith is in vain and you're still stuck in your sin because you're believing in a false savior and your hope is in vain because there is no eternity. There is no life after death. There's nothing past the end of your days here if Christ has not been raised. But he has been raised. And Paul assures us that he is the first fruits, meaning he was the first one to come back from death, but he won't be the last. He was the first one to come back alive, and he is saving to himself an entire people that will be raised after death to live eternity with him. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection with him. And when he was raised, a lot of people say, okay, well, if he was raised from the dead, then where's Jesus? Like, we should be able to see him. Well, Mark, we find out in Mark 16, 19, tells us, so that when the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He's still alive. He's just not on earth anymore. He ascended into heaven and he's sitting where he belongs on the throne, ruling and reigning and mediating for you and I with God the Father as we pray and as we seek repentance of sins. And so I have this conversation often with people. This is the question. Was he really raised to life? Is it true or is it not true? And a lot of them have a hard time believing it because like, I can't see it. I don't have enough evidence. There isn't this, you know. Okay, well, let's take, off, take a step back from that for a second. Let me just give you this thought. If it's not true, let's just pretend for a second. If it's not true, then this life is all for naught anyways, right? If it's not true, then you get 70 years here and you're done and we might as well just, it doesn't even matter. Nothing you do on the earth matters because it's just gonna end in 70 years and we're all gonna fade into dust. And if that's true, me believing in Jesus, I've lost nothing because we're all headed for nothing anyways. But if it is true, if it's true that he's raised from the dead and that this life is just a short, momentary preparation for all of eternity with him, and you don't believe, you've lost everything. So even if you don't understand all the details, even if you can't put all the facts together yet, you don't quite see it all, isn't it still a better bet to just go with, I might get eternity with Jesus? Or like, isn't that just a logical alternative? Even if we can't understand every little nook and cranny of the Bible or faith or whatever, just something to think about.
So Christ was raised from the dead. And then go back to Philippians. Here in Philippians, Paul brings it all back together. And he brings it back to the whole purpose, the whole point. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted over all. Jesus' name is above all names, precisely because he came and died and rose again. And one day, he's going to return, as we just sang earlier. I couldn't even sing that fourth psalm, and I was crying so hard up here in the front seat, like, Jesus is coming back. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess, and we will see him in his exalted state. That in of itself is enough for me to say yes to Jesus. Jesus is exalted precisely because of his humility. And we can experience his exalted glory right here in this life. We don't even have to wait for him to come back. We can have it here and now. We don't have to wait for heaven, but we do have to humble ourselves. We do have to allow ourselves to come before him and have, follow his example and have his mindset and humble ourselves before Jesus. Will you do that today? Will you humble yourself before the exalted Christ? That is a question that you have to deal with today. You can say no, but you can't ignore it. You have to make a choice to experience the heights of God's glory. I must meet Christ in the depths of his humility. This is the only way you get there. To humble yourself before Christ, to repent of your sin, and to turn to him as Lord and Savior. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do that right here, right now. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, you're going to pray, and you're going to pray and repent and confess and do whatever you need to do to humble your heart before the Savior and the King of the universe right here in this place. And then after I get done praying, we're going to sing, and we're going to exalt the name of Jesus because he is worthy. Stay with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We thank you, God. Lord, we can never say enough thank yous to you for sending your son, Jesus, to humbly take our place on the cross, Lord. You died for me. You died for us, Lord. You came and you served us better than anyone could ever serve another person. God, please, right now, stir our minds. Stir our hearts to treasure the humble sacrifice of your son. Not to dismiss it, not to forget about it, not to gloss over it, Lord. Help us to treasure the humble sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sin. And may we respond in humble worship and 
service to you because you are worthy. Lord, we worship you in this place today. May you be exalted over all. In Christ's name we pray.